You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to another episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. Michael Bayless is my name, and placing Homo sapiens back in their appropriate spot in the ecological web of life is my game. When Scott Morrison described himself as a bulldozer, I decided to interpret this as a Jungian reference to the collective human shadow which persists in literally and figuratively bulldozing everything in the natural world in order to perpetuate the cultural delusion that corralling material goods will one day result in pure bliss and happiness, as opposed to the empire of dirt and ruin that we are instead creating. However, somehow I doubt that was ScoMo's intended meaning. As I'm recording this, my head is still cloudy, not only from the outcome, but also the 2013 vintage charades that I drank to celebrate the occasion. As an environmentalist and as an advocate for justice and decency, I haven't been this relieved from an election result in a very long time. Yes, this victory is far from perfect. Yes, I felt burned in 2007 from the relief of Howard being ousted, only to be greeted by more business as usual. And no, there has been precious little in the election campaign on degrowth, on the humongous rate of recent biodiversity collapse in Australia, or on population policy, to which many polls have shown that 70% of Australians are against. So is anything different this time? I think so. Firstly, up until this point, I was a bit despondent with the idea that Australians were inflicted by a type of Stockholm Syndrome, cursed to revolt in their perpetrators at every opportunity, despite how bitterly we complain about being done over. For the first time in a while, it does appear as though we've decided to act upon our concerns come poll time. A majority of us have said no to career politicians who would rather waste money on car parks and botch submarine deals at the expense of disaster relief management, who have demonstrated inertia and contempt at climate change, ICAC, and a culture abuse and disregard for women within the halls of cabinet itself. Secondly, People are voting for environmental parties and independents with actual climate change policies a world away from the motor enthusiast party voted in 10 years ago. These are all reasons for some measured optimism for political reform, if not quite hope for a degrowth future. The election results don't bear an awful lot of relation to my conversation with my guest for this episode, apart from two factors. Firstly, my guest, who is 80 years old and has been in the public eye for many of these years as a historian and theologian, describes the then Morrison government as the most incompetent in living memory during the interview. Secondly, my guests and I were momentarily distracted in a tangential conversation about South Australian red wine, which is still giving me a vague post-election victory headache at time of recording. Thirdly, the Catholic Church, to which my guests used to belong, is similar to Australian politics in terms of the fact that both shy away from a mature discussion on population. Who is his guest to which I speak? Why, none other than Paul Collins. Dr Paul Collins is one of Australia's best-known independent commentators on Catholic religious and spiritual affairs. He is a respected commentator in the area of ethics, environmentalism, population and nature. In early 2001, after 33 years of service as a Catholic priest, Paul resigned from active priestly ministry duties due to a dispute with the Vatican over his 1997 book, Papal Power. Since then, he has been a regular commentator on ABC, SBS, and having published over 15 non-fiction books, mostly on the issues of history, theology, and the environment. Paul's latest book is the rather strikingly titled The Depopulation Imperative. For those who find the mere issue of population stability a moral challenge, you may find yourself struggling with the premise of the book. However, the book shares a similar underlying philosophy with many of the episodes of PGAP in terms of the need to shift our collective focus from one of anthrocentrism to ecocentrism, nature first if you will. 
Some of the arguments from the depopulation imperative remind me of some of the ideas from Peter Singer's Rethinking Life and Death or Daniel Quinn's Ishmael. And yet, as a person of faith, Paul moves beyond the secular to call on an entire spiritual revolution. It begs the question, isn't it all a bit chalk and cheese for a Catholic man to be advocating for population stability and decline? <laughs> this isn't an issue that the Vatican are renowned for supporting. After all, back in January, Pope Francis, who is otherwise progressive on other environmental and social justice issues, labelled people who adopt pets rather than have their own children as a form of selfishness. However, Paul has described himself as somewhat and of, and I quote, an oddbot in a population movement. I come very strongly from a Catholic tradition, and we of course have a very bad reputation in the area. As a vocal advocate on population and a patron for Sustainable Population Australia, Paul certainly does not place himself on easily labelled boxes willingly. This is just the sort of person we want on PGAP. So without further ado, I will hand it over to Paul to take the floor. Paul Collins, welcome back to... Well, not welcome back. Welcome onto PGAP for the first time. Thank <laughs> um, you. Welcome back to chatting with me because I've had the privilege to interview you before for the Sustainable Population Australia's Meet the Patron series and thrilled to be meeting you again for a longer and pithier conversation. Uh, how are you and how has life changed for you since we last met almost exactly three years ago? Well, we've changed address, that's one thing. And so I now am, well, I was reminded of the pain of moving, uh, but we're in a much better place now and um, it cost us a lot less than we paid for the former apartment we live in. So there, we're financially a little bit ahead, so that's always something in this world. Uh, well, look, recently, just to uh, keep the wolf from the door and to make sure the brain doesn't atrophy, I wrote the population book, The Depopulation uh, Imperative, 12 months work. So that took me right through most of the early stages of COVID. And in the meantime, because there is a big, um, big review of the Catholic Church going on in Australia at the present moment, I thought it was time that they heard from me. So I've written another short book, 33,000 words is a short book, um, on the state of the church in Australia. So my brain hasn't quite atrophied yet. <laughs> Well, I'm sure the Catholic Church in Australia have missed from hearing from you, Paul. Uh, your latest book, The Depopulation Imperative, is not the first book you've written. Uh, indeed, this is not the first time you've appeared on the media. You've been unafraid to hold controversial environmental perspectives and have never been a typical Catholic. For those who may not know you, share with us some of your highlights of your public life over the years and what are the key passions that drive you? Look, I was a Catholic priest, an active Catholic priest for 33 years. A book of mine that I wrote in 1997 called Papal Power uh, got into some trouble with what used to be called the Inquisition in Rome. It now has a, a much more distinguished title. It calls itself uh, The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And the personage in charge of the congregation at that time was a gentleman named Joseph Ratzinger, who, of course, was then elected as Pope Benedict XVI in 2003. By, let's say, about 2000, it was clear to me that uh, I wasn't going to back down and that the crowd in Rome were not going to back down. So I thought that discretion was the better part of valour. And uh, so I resigned from the active ministry of the Catholic Church. But I'm still a very active Catholic and still write about the church. I suppose I could claim to be probably the person who knows more about the papacy in, than anyone else in Australia. Perhaps Cardinal Pell knows a little bit more than I do, but not he doesn't know the scandalous stuff. I only, I only know the <laughs> virtuous stuff. Look, I also had uh, six years in the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, eventually for four years being the boss of religion and ethics department in the ABC. There I worked uh, with Norman Swan, um, whom everyone will know as, of course, the um, 
the Corona podcast man, and um, Norman and I, well, we were very cooperative in running Radio National. He was the managing director, and I was his kind of 2IC. Uh, so I know RN very well. Other than that, most of my life has been either in parish work. I had four years uh, teaching in the United States in a university there, in a Catholic university. Basically, my training is as an historian, my doctoral studies it's actually in Australian history uh, from the ANU. I, I think I approach things as a historian. History teaches you to think synthetically, to see kind of see an overall image of things. I was very, very lucky back in the 1970s. Um, I, I was teaching church history uh, in the seminary in Sydney, the place for priests in training. I had a three-year course which covered the whole of, of Christian, of the church's history from Christ till today. And I taught that course a couple of times. And what it did was it gave me a synthetic view of Western culture, because the church is so profoundly involved in and part of culture right up to our own time. That's in a way what I hope I brought to the depopulation imperative. That is, many people, they get it, that, the, that population is an enormous problem. But it, it's always dealt with in, with piecemeal, bits of it are dealt with. Whereas what this book tries to do is to look at the whole issue and to come to what I see as the core of the issue, which to me is that we are dominated by anthropocentrism. It's constantly human beings first. God help the animals, they might come second or third. Uh, you know, after the economy and goodness knows what else. Uh, but for me, I've moved. I'm biocentric. I'm ecocentric. That is, the world comes first because it's our home. And without a home, we are proverbially up the creek. <laughs> the first question I always ask an author of a book of any decent uh, word length is, how do you do it? As an author of articles that rarely exceed 2,000, 500 words, I have nightmares involving trap changes. Uh, do you have full PTSD flashbacks of your editors, for example? Uh, no, um, um, I haven't met an editor I didn't love um, because good editors really improve books. Not all editors are perfect by any means, but I've been lucky. I've had a lot of very good editors. People say, how do you write a book? It's a very simple formula. You place your bum on the seat, turn on the computer, open a blank page and start. It's as simple as that. Uh, you, of course, have to have an idea before you start. I've, ne I've never written non-fiction. I, I mean, I've, I've only written fiction. I think I'm 16 books up of non-fiction now. I've tried my hand at fiction. I find it much harder than non-fiction because I suppose as a historian, I'm struggling all the time of what are the facts? What actually happened? What is this all about? What underpins this? What is the theory behind this, you see? So uh, non-fiction non is good that way because it, it, you, your subject sets your parameters. Look, it, it's hard work. I'd be a fool to say it's not. It's, it's bloody hard work. And, you know, the simple reality is that it's a very lonely existence. Um, you spend a lot of time on your own. And you need to be on your own, but you certainly can't think straight otherwise if you're constantly interrupted. Um, and then when the finished product comes... Um, you know, it, it goes off um, if it's acceptable to the publisher. I've been very lucky in the last couple of books I've done, they've been done in two of them in the United States, are primarily published in by public affairs uh, publisher in New York. American editors are just amazingly good. And most of them are middle-aged women. In other words, they're literate. Um, they haven't been subjected to postmodern education. They actually know something and they can do understand a coherent sentence. Uh, so I've had really good editors there. The depopulation imperative, um, because I'm with a very small publisher, and, and I, I don't blame Australian publishers for a moment. It's very difficult publishing books in Australia. It's such a small market. Uh, a book like this is not going to have big sales. Uh, my publisher in Melbourne, Australian Scholarly, um, I needed to, I had to edit the book, so my wife and I did it. So if you find any misprints, well, you can blame us. But that's the Australian scene a bit in publishing. It's a, it's a much financially tighter scene than in the United States. 
my view is, um, like you, I, I try to write a lot of short articles on the blog, uh, Pearls and Irritations. I, I write for that quite often, occasionally for Eureka Street. But um, my view is that once the book is out, in, in some ways it's, it's history. It's in the historical narrative. And any historians coming writing the history of whatever they might be writing, well, your book is there for them to see and to see what you thought and what you said. I'm not infallible, but I have views, especially on population, and um, I'm prepared to put them out there. And I, w I won't win friends and influence people, but um, c'est la vie. One of the things you quickly realise in the sustainable population movement is how few friends you make as a result. Exactly. Like so many of the books that I've read for the PGAP uh, podcast series, the depopulation imperative, how many people can earth support, has been another that has totally blown my mind, especially in the last chapter. Uh, so thank you, Paul. Um, given the recent comments from the Pope, the most recent Pope, saying that adopting or animal companions in lieu of one's own children is selfish, there's some weird serendipity to going here. Um, did the Pope make you roll your eyes as much as he did mine? Look, um, as I said, I probably know more about the Pope than anyone else in Australia. That's quite a claim, I know, but there's some truth to it. I'd be one of five at any rate. Pope Francis has an extremely good record on environmental issues. His encyclical Laudato Si, uh, this letter that he wrote to the whole church, I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, he goes after anthropocentrism. He goes after, you know, technological solutions to everything. He he, he really is right on the ball. But on population, uh, he's not good. And he just doesn't see it as a problem. He has a very brief reference to reproductive health in Laudato Si. And I just have to say it's it's a dismissive reference. I think it's very sad. You've, all, you've got to understand the culture he's coming from. This, this bloke's an Argentinian. He's an Argentinian bloke. Now, any Argentinian blokes listening um, may not love my characterization of them, but Hispanic blokes are, can be a bit on the sexist side, perhaps not sexist, but perhaps non-appreciative of modern feminism. And the reproductive health, the dismissal of reproductive health, in my mind, is um, is, is a, a stupid thing to say. Um, but he's not the first pope to have said stupid things. When I was reading your book, uh, I almost thought that Pope Francis sounded a little bit like the George Monbiot of the Catholic movement, you know, uh, really good on everything environmental, apart from population. Which, there uh, you are. <laughs> this question needs to be asked just so it can be out of the way and we can move on. <laughs> As communications manager for SPA, I've noticed a zeitgeist against population sustainability shift pre-COVID to post-COVID. Advocates for a stable population, let alone depopulation, are used to be calling racists and eco-fascists and blah, blah, blah. Nowadays, apparently, we're willing agents for Agenda 21 and the Great Reset via the sterilising vaccines. So, Paul, are you working for Bill Gates? And if you are, can you put in a good word for me as I really need the money? Um I'm more likely to be working for Melinda Gates uh, because um, I know they are not exactly a couple any longer, but um, she's, an, she's an interesting woman, Melinda Gates, because uh, she's a Catholic originally. Um, I don't know what her commitment is at the present moment, but she has been doing an enormous amount of fun contraception in the developing world, and um, I applaud her for that. Uh, as, as for Bill, well, um, uh, look, <laughs> I think you'll have to go with your begging bowl on your own for that one, Michael. I'm sorry. Uh, I can't get He's never given me a call at any rate. Well, thanks, Paul. There goes my get-rich-quick scheme. <laughs> Back to the drawing board. So um, the depopulation imperative isn't exactly easy reading, and your solutions call not just for some structural changes but a fairly intensive spiritual realignment that takes us outside of language. It's so difficult for me to give an express summary of the book but tell us where you currently stand on population and how your theological beliefs have fed into your ecocentric perspectives. Well, I've, I've been trying to think when 
when I really first realized that world overpopulation was a serious issue, I think it came to me when I was teaching in the United States. Um, I was living in Michigan at the time and southern Michigan, and there's an, uh, this is a beautiful area of lakes, but much of it is destroyed by industry. Much of it is destroyed by polluting industries, some associated with the car industry, some associated with the defense industries. For instance, Southern Michigan is a big producer of refrigerators, things, you know, things like that. And somehow or other, I don't know why it was because Southern Michigan is not particularly overpopulated, but somehow or other, population became an issue for me there. And that was reinforced when I visited China. And I've never been to India. I have been to Sri Lanka. Um, and, and it strikes you in a country like Sri Lanka as well. So, and, and, the, and the other connecting issue is that nature doesn't destroy it, it, itself. We destroy it. And the more pressure we put on nature, the more we destroy nature. Throughout the 1990s, I was involved in logging of old growth forests. I mean, it really struck me how rapacious and stupid human beings can be. I mean, it is the most stupid industry. I mean, I'm not negative about human beings. I like human beings. I've got a lot of friends. I was actually once described when I was on television on the ABC, a woman wrote in and she said she couldn't believe how a man with such a kind face said so many cruel things about people. <sighs> there you are. So I'm not, I'm not anti-human in any way, but, but we are the problem. You know, we've, we've got to recognise that we are the problem. I mean, theologically, there's a concept called metanoia in Greek, which means repentance. And what it means is for, you first got to recognise the problem. You know, if you've got a problem with alcohol, you've got to, you know, AA tells you, you've got to recognise you've got it. If you've got a problem with any form of um, addiction, you've got to recognise it. We've got a problem with too many people. So the first step is to recognise the problem. And, and I try to do that in the book. And I try to use a concrete illustration of it in the book in the first chapter where I talk about the West African country of Niger or Niger. I mean, th this, is a this is a country the size of France. Most of it is the Sahara Desert. There is some marginal land there. And then some of it, about 20, 15 to 20% of it is habitable. In 1960, it had a population of 3 million. Its present population is 22 million. I'm going for figures out straight off the top of my head here. They're in the book. It's estimated by 2050, the UN estimates it'll be 53 million. It is totally unsustainable. This, this is a country, each woman is bearing, on average, 6.9 children. You know, um, Deutsche Welle did a, an excellent documentary on Niger, and they met... 18-year-old girls with three children, you know. So we're, we're really talking about a serious problem because in the end, you, you, you can talk about we've got to respect culture and so, yes, it's a high-fertility culture and so you can respect it if you want to. But in the end, they're going to kill each other because resources are so limited. The only water they've got is the Niger River um, it's not a country that can carry 53 million. David Attenborough has been saying this for yonks. He's saying, why in God's name are we looking after people in areas that are totally uninhabitable? That area around Somalia, where there are recurrent um, droughts. So, I mean, these are very hard questions. And we humans want to rush in and help other humans. That's because we're generous and decent. But in the end, you are not helping them by keeping them alive for another drought, which is going to come. So, so in a way, these are the kind of issues that, you know, got me more and more tied up in this question of, of depopulation. But at the heart of the problem for us human beings is that we see ourselves as the centre of everything. And uh, well, one of the questions I ask in the book, you know, the universe has been how, here for however many billion years. You know, the Earth's been here for whatever billion years. We've been here for 200,000 tops. How could a species that's been here for 200,000 in, in an, an enormously ancient universe be the meaning of the universe? I mean, this is a serious philosophical question. So, yes, it's understandable that species are species-centric, but we also have consciousness. We also have a, a very highly developed consciousness. 
And so it seems to me that we have a, an obligation to reflect on what we are doing to the earth. And we have got to start to see ourselves in some type of ecological, biological perspective. Uh, we've got to place ourselves as part of nature, not the lords and masters of nature. So, I mean, essentially, that's what the book is arguing. It's arguing the time for anthropocentrism is past. The time for all of the, you know, technology will solve everything. You know, this naive belief that technology, which often created the problem, is going to be the solution to the problem. Essentially, some type of spiritual growth, some type of deeper understanding of our place in the cosmos that's in a way that's going to lead us to a solution. Now, for sure, that solution is going to have to be worked out in a whole lot of exactly, as you've said in your own podcasts, it's got to be worked out in detailed ways. But we've got to have an overall, if you like, perspective. We've got to see ourselves in perspective. When we do that, then I think because we are intelligent beings, we will, in fact, begin to operate in ways that are in tandem with in sync with our perspective now speaking of my podcast so the recent manifesto i launched on big hap i said that putting a stop to the scale of human impact on the planet is a crucial starting point now most population organizations such as uh, sustainable population australia uh, who you're a patron for advocate for a stable and slow degrowth of population and this is usually controversial enough among the general public However, you suggest in the book that a rapid degrowth of population is necessary. Now, I personally hope your book does really well, so it makes sparsely more moderate in comparison. But would you like to share your rationale here? Well, well, that's the key question, Michael. And the, the, the honest answer is I don't have an honest answer. I mean, the truth is I can't see, and I kind of semi-say that in the book, but I can't see how we can do this rapidly enough to deal with global warming, you know, biodiversity loss, all of the other, you know, resource um, exploitation, all of those kind of issues that are facing us. Now, it may be that nature will deal with the period, you know, previously nature did deal. Our numbers were kept down essentially by plague. But now, of course, um, the numbers have so escalated, certainly since the Industrial Revolution, that um, as as Omicron and Delta are showing us, and 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 our meds, our medical knowledge is so escalated that plague is no longer a threat to us. A nuclear war certainly would um, reduce human populations, and I'm not I'm not recommending that for a second. Um, uh, because it would not only reduce populations, it would reduce the world to an unlivable place and destroy the natural world. I suggest a bit of a hope in the the decline in male fertility. Um, I, I mentioned that in the book, but again, you know, um, the evidence for that is 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 there, but it's certainly not overwhelming, and it probably won't work as a way of reducing population so I, I i'm left with uh, you know in a way the philosophy is the refuge of those who don't have any practical solutions uh, i'm left with saying we've got to shift our mindset from anthropocentric to bioecocentric but the truth is um i don't have a ready um solution to a rapid depopulation, but I at least want to put the issue on the agenda because it's not just for me to have the solution, it's for all of us to have the solution. I want people to start thinking and talking about this. I want us to use our, our accumulated experience as human beings um, and as moral people uh, to focus on the issue. Now, I hope that's not a cop-out. Um, some people, I think, will say it is. Uh, if they do, well, they have every right to that opinion. On PGAP, we often ask the population question and invite a variety of responses. And indeed, we have got uh, the broad spectrum. Uh, now, while most of the guests on a degrowth 
podcasts have thankfully moved on from technological salvation, unlike Ms. Allen. Common critiques of population include wealth inequality and consumption patterns in the global north. Personally, I've always maintained that these criticisms point to a wider problem of focusing exclusively on one issue in isolation, rather than there being something inherently wrong with population sustainability itself. For example, the Green New Deal is inherently wrong because it focuses on one aspect, which is technological. But as someone who's been vocal on this issue for a long time, what's your take? Well, um, I, you know, um, I'm, I come from the Catholic tradition and social justice and equity is very, very strong in, in, in that tradition. And, you know, to his credit, uh, Pope Francis has, has been very, very strong on that. However, as exactly as you say, Michael, it's a one solution and it's an anthropocentric solution because while there may be, you know, possibly down the track somewhere more or less um, benefits for nature, um, I'm not sure about them. And the other issue here is that if you could persuade people in developed countries to lower their standard of living and to live more sustainably, uh, and, and, you know, we're kind of making some efforts in that direction with recycling and God knows all the other various things. Does that mean that we're going to then bring everybody else up from the, from the developing world to that's kind of some type of medium standard of living, which would in the end achieve nothing because they're going to be chewing up the resources that we're no longer chewing up. If you, if you think people uh, in the developing world um, are, are going to limit their consumption, and if you think that they're, as un they're much more unselfish than we are, give me a break, is all I want to say. If you want an example of, you know, people coming out of poverty, go to China. They're coming out of poverty. There's no doubt that the Communist Party has brought literally <laughs> millions and millions of people out of poverty. But go for a walk in Shanghai. Go down to the Bund. Go down to where all the luxury shops are. Go down to all of the brands that are on sale there, uh, all at massively inflated prices. And go and watch the Chinese, who have just come out of poverty, buying up big, because now they've got money. So people in developing worlds are just as selfish as we are. And it is true that they're not chewing up the resources that we are. But if they could, they would. And even so, we see even if you could reach this kind of middle equilibrium between the developed world and the developing world, you are still chewing up as many, if not more, resources because you haven't tackled the underlying problem, which is the number of people. And as long as we've got 7.9 billion, uh, we are not tackling the problem. One of the uh, interesting aspects I find, uh, I think you call it postmodernism, um, but a lot in the social justice movement, it's almost like they posit something inherently wrong with certain sectors of society, like people who live in developed countries and are white and male and of an older demographic. Uh, I personally have always seen this as where the foci of power currently lies. So it's not a matter of something inherently that you were born with physiologically, but it's just where at any given point in time, the, the, the ball of power <laughs> prioritises certain people, but not others. And, and that could be anyone because power corrupts, you know. It, mm. I find it weird to feel that I'm so anti-development and yet if I ended up as a um, mainstream politician, I'd probably have property developer mates that then fall down the same rabbit hole as anyone else who's been a mainstream politician would be. So. Yeah. We have problems, I think, certainly in Australia, but in, our, in Western culture generally, with both the left and the right. Uh, I think I say in the book that in some ways the left is worse than the right. Um, and as a person who kind of sees himself as a bit of a lefty, um, you know, I'm loath to, to say that. But I think what has happened with the left is that it has become utterly besotted and focused on just some issues, is issues of multiculturalism, uh, issues uh, to do with um, particular rights, 
Now, as someone, I'll put them on the record here, I, I voted to support gay marriage. I've never, and I've publicly supported it. I've been uh, at me meetings giving speeches when it wasn't a popular topic. I support gay marriage and I support gay people and some, some of my best friends are gay. But the endless focus on the gender issue um, and in a way, this uh, uh, partly applies to women as well. This, I mean, this is an endless kind of focus for the left. Whereas when you look at the right, I mean, well, I have to say, um, looking at the present government in Australia, the right are pretty incompetent. I mean, I'm 80. And so I've been around a few governments in my time. And I was, you know, an adult in the time of the infamous Billy McMahon, pretty incompetent government. John Gordon's government was relatively incompetent as well. But I've never seen a government worse than this. But at the same time, you know, the, I think the right are actually more, are in crisis at the present moment because there's more and more widespread questioning of neo-rationalist economics. Um, the, the, you know, that are, the, all of those things, are, are, I think, are starting to happen. Uh, but honestly, dealing with the left, they're the ones who are the, the fastest off the blocks to call you and I racists. The right don't. You know, I'm trying to get a reviewer in the Australian to review the book at the present moment. So, and, and postmodernism, it's, it's one of those catch-all words. It, it really just describes you know, the tag end of our culture at the present moment. But I think it has had dreadful effects in education, uh, both in primary, in secondary and above all in university education. I see it in journalists and young journalists at the present moment. And, I, and I'm not critical because there's some very talented young journalists. They're very good, but they don't know anything. And nobody's helping them. And their education has let them down. So I mean I, th I I mean I think postmodernism has been a very destructive reality for us. I think that's worth uh, bringing up because it is mentioned uh, several times in the book. I think I didn't actually have it as one of my questions, but then I thought, yeah, better uh, dig into that a bit. Now, I'm not sure if this was a surprise to you or not. It was a surprise to me. But some of your positions on morality in the book actually reminded me a little of Peter Singer in his book, Rethinking Life and Death, which I read about 12 years ago. As I was saying this question, uh, some of the morality in the book also reminds me of Ishmael as well. Um, I, I forget who wrote that. But um, with a singer reference, this surprised me as a, a little because he's an unabashed atheist, whereas, um, <laughs> you know, you hold very strong Catholic beliefs, uh, even though you're a little bit more distant from the church than you used to be. It's so tempting to categorise the Christian faiths as antithetical to both the scientific understanding of the world and population control. Uh, the recent comments by Pope Francis, you know, with population mm. <laughs> feeds into that narrative. So I was surprised in your book to read that Christianity has been at times a lot more radical, anti-establishment and environmentally aware than the stereotype gives credit for. So while I still have trouble picturing someone believing in a monotheist God and being an environmental activist with, without some sort of splitting the difference, uh, can you tell us how the two can intersect? The Christian tradition <clears throat> is much richer than people give it credit for. Uh, and, and one of the, if you like, de-emphasised parts of the Christian tradition is its emphasis on, on the natural world and on nature as a manifestation of God's reality. You can find it right through the Christian tradition. The most prominent person would be St Francis of Assisi. I mean, what unfortunately happens to Francis is that the people get onto him and turn him into a kind of a mushy, sentimental kind of guy running around patting animals. St. Francis was a radical ascetic in the Catholic tradition. St. Francis was not, um, a, you know, a pious bullshit artist. But he's not alone. Uh, for instance, if you, if you go back to some early Irish Christianity, they're besotted with nature. Nature is, for them, a manifestation of God, but it is also a place where people go to find themselves there's a, there's a story told of the Irish saint Columbanus who ended up in, Bob, in Bobbio in northern Italy, but he loved mountains and forests. The story goes that <clears throat> he was surrounded by a pack of wolves who were 
keen on getting a bite out of him. But he actually just stood there, and this, is, and this this was actually seen by witnesses. He's just stood there, and he calmed the wolves down. St. Francis is a, sim, a similar story of the, the wolf of Gubbio, isn't it, where St. Francis calmed down a wolf. And uh, a woman who, um, back in 60 years ago, who wrote about Christian mysticism speaks about the ability of people who are so in touch with nature, like Francis and Columbanus, that the animals perceive within them the calmness, and they are able to calm animals down. I mean, this is this has been going on all. The, for instance, a, a woman who's just been rediscovered, a medieval woman who's just been rediscovered, is Hildegard of Bingen. You know, everybody's talking. You know, well, not everybody, but people who are interested in the Middle Ages are all talking about Hildegard of Bingen, and they, her music's been recorded. You know, there's tons of CDs of her music. Every trendy group has recorded it. She was absolutely in touch with nature. Even someone like St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, the, the theologian of the Middle Ages, he says, he, the Latin is interesting, the Latin says, omnia creatura demonstrat personam patris, omnia creatura, all creatures, so sulfur-crested cockatoos, wombats, kangaroos, etc., all creatures, demonstrat, show forth, it's stronger than demonstrate. It's much more show forth, mirror, the personam patris, the personality of God. In other words, Aquinas is saying God is in nature. God is present in nature. Nature is not God, that's pantheism, but God is present in nature and God is manifested through nature. The thing that strikes me talking to a lot of bushwalkers and greenies, and I know a few, for instance, one bloke who's a very experienced bushwalker in Tassie, and I'm talking about a bloke who really knows the back blocks of Tassie, and he said to me, now this guy has no religious background, he said to me, out in the bush, he said, you realise two things. You realise nature is indifferent to you. Nature does not give a shit about you uh, because you're not important, really. He says, so you're put in perspective, you're humbled, to use his expression, Secondly, he says, you perceive some type of presence. There is something out there that is not you and not another human being, but is real. But I've heard that report from lots of bushwalkers. <clears throat> they may not use exactly the same words, but that's what they're talking about. That kind of notion of a transcendent presence, I'm not going to say God's presence, you know, because... God's one of those words that get people upset. So let's say a transcendent presence is, is there in, in nature. Now, the Buddhists realize that. They understand that. They understand transcendence. They don't talk about God, but they do understand transcendence. And so that tradition has been there right from the beginning within Christianity. And it's really only recently, in really in the last 60 or 80 years that we have recovered that within Christianity. So you've got a number of important theologians talking about it now. Perhaps the most prominent of those is the great Protestant theologian Jürgen Moltmann, a German theologian. Um, I once interviewed Moltmann uh, when I was working for the ABC, a gentleman and a scholar if ever there was one. But you're hearing it from people like the great cos the American cosmologist Thomas Berry, um, you hear it from some of our own people here in Australia. The late Dennis Edwards used to write about this. I've written about it. It's part, we're recovering a part of the Christian tradition that has been forgotten. The, the encyclical of Pope Francis has made that all respectable now, Laudato Si, except on population. It's, it's there and it's part of the tradition. We're recovering it. I think that environmental and green issues are the, is, are the grounds upon which Christians can talk to secular people, people with different beliefs, but who have a common cause, which is the protection of nature. I see that as the ground whereby we can talk to each other as equals, um, as people concerned about the same reality, coming from different perspectives and recognizing our differences, but being able to focus on this issue which is much more important than our differences. Thank you so much for that, Paul. And 
Personally, I do recommend people within the population movement to read this book. So often it's so easy for people who are into population sustainability to say that religion is at the fault of everything. Um, I always try and be careful to say it's the patriarchal elements of some of the organised religions, um, so to not wholly diss a spiritual belief itself. Um, this book does add a whole new perspective to that. It's one of the reasons why it blew my mind as well. So the other, the other thing that blew my mind was the last chapter. Uh, so my take on it is that the depopulation imperative seems to call for an almost complete spiritual revival that transcends traditional organised religion. Um, I've always maintained that the shifting consciousness requires us to move beyond our language narratives and various isms in order to transcend repeating the mistakes of the past and the present. Indeed, this has led me towards various Buddhist, Zen, non-dual, even shamanic philosophies. Does this have any vague parallels with what you are advocating for and would... Uh... <laughs> I'm almost tempted to suggest ayahuasca in the water supply, but maybe that's a step too far. <laughs> yes, it's crossed my mind as well. Um, but look, um, I think at the present moment we are, I use the word mutation. It's a biological word, I know. Um, mutation, biologically, mutations are interesting because they're not complete changes. They are based on the past, you know, something, a, a species mutates, but it mutates from something to something. I think we're in the process just at the, at the present moment. I agree with you. The past no longer has solutions for us. It faced its problems and it dealt with them as it saw. What we are facing are utterly new challenges. We have never been in this situation before. We have never had so many people, ever remotely. We have never so destroyed the earth. We have never so brought about biological extinction on, on, a, on this scale. So we are facing a, a mutation. We've got to mutate. And the solution is not to be found in the past. The solution is not to be found um, in the old economics. It's not to be found in the old religion. It's not to be then Then that's not where the solution is. But we were, we're never just sitting in, you know, in a kind of divorced from history. We've got all our past. It's, it, we've got to build it in. We've got to integrate it. But then we've got to move beyond it. I, one thing history has taught me is that you can't leave your past behind if you haven't integrated it, if you, have, if you don't know where you're coming from. And that's why I always place a historical perspective for everything. If you know where you're coming from, you can then feel free to say, thank you very much, that was very helpful, then it isn't now. The interesting thing about Catholicism and Christianity generally, Christianity's been through at least four or five mutations. It's changed itself because you don't live if you don't change. The great English theologian John Henry Newman Anglican and then Catholic, converted to Catholicism, probably the greatest theologian since the Reformation. Newman says to live is to change and to live fully is to have changed often. You know, I, I think that that's, that's where we are at the present moment. Integrate the past, think very carefully about where we are at the present and begin to discover solutions for the future. I think religion will be part of that process. It won't be the whole process, but it'll be part of that process. You know, science will be part of the process because science is going to teach us things. There is no conflict between religion and science. It's, a, it's an artificial conflict. And, you know, it's, it's made up by fundamentalist scientists and fundamentalist religionists. You know, if I may mention a name of someone who annoys me a lot, it's Richard Dawkins. Um, he sets up false false gods and then strikes them down. Um, you know, he would never talk to a respectable theologian. He talks to fundamentalist crazies. So we've got our crazies. Science has a lot fewer crazies than we religious people do. We all need each other to get through this, this process. Paul, we are hurtling towards times that are unprecedented, fascinating and quite terrifying. 
Now, to stay present, uh, I drink a lot of McLaren Vale Shiraz, but I'm not sure if that's a long-term solution. Uh, what do you do to stay sane and present? Um, I, I drink Johnny Walker Black Label, um, which shows you that I'm not a classy bloke at all because it's a blend, it's not a pure malt, and I'm looked, <laughs> down, I'm looked down on by the snobs. Uh, but I also manage the odd Clare Valley or McLaren Vale or... Um, Ever so occasionally a Victorian red turns up trumps, but I'm very much a Shiraz person. Uh, I was out last night at a dinner party and um, we had a great time and drank quite a bit. So um, there you are. That's my consolation. The other consolation is to go for a walk in the bush and hope to see some native animals in the wild. That'll do you more good. Than anything, I often find Shiraz and bush walks don't work at the same time. You know, they don't no, stack on top of each other. <laughs> Absolutely, Michael. Now, Paul, this was absolutely fantastic, but we're coming to the end, unfortunately, like all good things and like all good um, Anthropocenes. Um, if PCAP listeners would like to do themselves a favour, as Molly Meldrum often put it, and grab a copy of the Depopulation Imperative, or if they'd like to find out more about your work more broadly, where can they go and how can they say hello? Uh, well, they can go to my webpage. Um, just to annoy the bishops and particularly to annoy Cardinal Pell, I call my webpage is called Paul Collins, all one word, Paul Collins Catholic Writer. So it's, it's so I'm making sure they George knows I'm a Catholic. So it's www.hawkonscatholicwriter.com.au. Um, my an address where people can contact me is there. I, I'm not on social media just because I'm an old man and it's all too much for me. It's too much for me too on a face. Well, thank you so much, Paul. I hope the book does very well. And thank you so much for being on PGAP. Thank you very much, Michael. You are listening to Postgrowth Australia podcasts. I'm your host, Michael Bayless, and we just spoke with a Dr. Paul Collins, author of the new book, The Depopulation Imperative. Link to the book and a selection of Paul's other works in the notes. This episode was made possible by Sustainable Population Australia. What did you think of the discussions raised in this episode? Agree, disagree, undecided? Would you like to see more philosophy, more economics, more permaculture or more housing crisis solutions in future episodes? Do you agree with my reaction to the Australian election results or do you think it's all too little too late? Make your thoughts, feelings and any ecocentric spiritual transcendings known to me by contacting PGAP, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or by sharing this episode and series with your friends, family, networks and a neighbourhood cat. Until next time, until then.